Welcome to the Reorg Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leveraged finance, and direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Reorg's municipals reporter Hua Huan speaks to Matt Fabian, partner in municipal market analytics, about the potential impact of climate change on credit quality in the municipal market following the Maui wildfires and the subsequent lawsuits involving Hawaiian electric industries. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. On October 12th, Reorgs, Theis Broberg, Jeff Kramer, Julian Boulan, and Ben Sauer will be at this year's annual LLTA conference. For more information, please visit reorg.com events or contact marketing at reorg.com. We'd love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, October 2nd. Welcome back to another episode of the Reorg Prime Review podcast. I am Huang Nguyen, a municipal reporter at Reorg, and I'm pleased to have Matt Fabian, partner at Municipal Market Analytics with me here this morning. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Wa. So Matt leads market and credit research at MMA, and he's also the lead contributor to the MMA's weekly municipal outlook and bi-weekly municipal default trends. Before joining MMA in 2015, he was the lead municipal research analyst for UBS and UBS Wealth Management Research. Earlier in his career, he was a municipal rating analyst with Moody's. So this week, um, Climate Week in New York coincides with the United Nations General Assembly, with you know world leaders, businesses, financial institutions, and tech companies alike coming together to discuss um, climate solutions. And in my own reporting recently, the Maui wildfires and the subsequent lawsuits involving Hawaiian Electric was arguably the straw that broke the camel's back when it comes to how we consider the potential impact of climate events on credit quality. So I thought it would be a good idea to zero in on this topic today, but with a more focused lens around the municipal bond market. So um, kind of just jumping right into our discussion, we don't usually highlight climate risks when talking about borrowing in the munis market, at least not very often historically. Um, how do you think the recent events involving Hawaiian Electric and you know Pacific Core with the, the Oregon wildfires in 2020 have reshaped the market's understanding around climate risks being factored into credit quality? So uh, that's a, I mean, uh, that's a great question. We, the market, the muni market thinks intensely about climate risk. And uh, although we may not show it in the prices paid for bonds or in the, you know, even in sort of the allocation strategies that, you know, major institutional investors um, um, undertake, there is, there are very few people in, in the muni bond market who don't spend a fair bit of time on a weekly or daily basis thinking about climate change, how to assess it, what do we know, and what should we know, um, what what you know, what kind of information can we get, and you know, in general, I think there's an expectation that there will be a tipping point for the muni bond market, and we're not there yet, but at some point, um, maybe it's post a few disasters, maybe something else, 
when climate factors will be directly incorporated into pricing, you know, will affect some issuers access to capital at, at where the rates at which they pay. And so um, when does that happen? I mean, we don't know, right? I don't know. No one knows quite, but we know that it's coming um, and that it will be a factor. So that's, that's, that's why we obsess over it because, you know, this is too big of a, this is too big of a vector for us to be behind. I see. So kind of just digging a little bit deeper into what you just said. Um, so I know that a lot of like what credit agencies, credit ratings um, tend to not incorporate long term risks to, you know, exposure to extreme weather conditions. How do you think this plays a role in the investor's judgment when deciding what to invest in and more specifically where to invest in, say, um, would a municipality on the coast with more exposure to hurricanes and floods potentially struggle when um, they're looking for investments in the future? Um, so let's talk about the ratings first. I think that the that the rating agencies uh, that they that they have not found a good way, right? Because you know we're talking about muni bonds, and so there there just aren't many defaults historically. For, you know, among the kind of borrowers that the rating agencies rate, right? There's plenty of defaults in munis. We talk about them all the time. But mm -hmm. but of the of the in the rated universe, which is you know sort of uh, you, you know a, a a discrete you know large and discrete subset, there just aren't that many. And so and there are even fewer of those you know a handful where uh, where um, climactic events, climatic events, either either it's um, you know, wildfires or hurricanes or things have directly or indirectly led to default. So the the agencies don't have a ton of data, and so building something into a model, which you know, in the way that rating agencies rate muni bonds these days, post SEC regulation, is you know, it's very top down, it's model driven, um, it is it is compliance oriented. And so it's difficult to build in factors that don't have a lot of data behind them. I think that they would, right, if they could. So what do we do in the in the absence? And and also, you know, knowing too that ratings, even long-term ratings, only really look to a three to five-year window, right? A 30-year bond rating yeah. is, you know, has its level with the expectation it'll be about the same in the for three to five years. And then, but that's updated every year, right? So there's um so the agencies don't, right? So so there isn't a lot of because of those two points. There isn't a lot of sort of long-term climate implications. So, you know, for the for in the in the muni space. Uh, so at the investor side. So what 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 do you do? You know, it is still you know, um, it's not quite reading tea leaves. That's that 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 is you know that is too dismissive of the effort. But there is data. Um, there's sources of data that investors have, right? There's third-party um, resources like uh, what um, um, RISC, R-A-S-Q, um, who works with ICE now, um, puts out. Um, there is, um, you know, FEMA has their uh, National Risk Index data, which free and, you know, and highlights um, census tract and county level exposures to physical perils. I think it's 14 physical perils. Um, so investors can use that as a rough guideline of where disasters are more likely to happen, where existing infrastructure is likely to become, um, um, or is likely to say, uh, uh, you know, need need replacement or improvement in the near term, um, where sort of climate change is going to become 
more of a long-term or medium-term financial challenge for the for those governments. So you can look to that. There's other factors that are important too, and I don't know how much we want to go into it here, but like you could just look, you've been just pulling out the FEMA data itself and using this as a sort of rough way to think about your allocations to states and geographies, you know, is not the worst idea in the world. I see. So another thing that you've, I've, I've seen you mention in your re research around this topic is that um, climate change will influence municipal issuers via property and casualty insurance or PNC insurance. Um, could you please elaborate on, on what that really means? And is this something that investors would pay close attention to when looking into a specific deal structure or a um, collateral package? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, this this week, first week, um, First Street came out with a new report about the about the potential uninsurability of selected zip codes around the country um, and California, um, which happens to have a lot of those zip codes in its boundaries, uh, has started talking about the need to reform its um, you know property casualty insurance structure. Right. So, uh, property casualty insurance, like all insurance, is regulated at the state level, and so state by state differences in um, in insurance prevalence, in in what policies cover, how the insurers can insure things, and the cost, you know, that's all at the state level. So, um, in you know, there are um, uh, starting really at the end of last year, um, the the you know the major reinsurers like Munich Re um, um, uh, started to push back, and you know, insurance is a great product as a short term you know it's it's sort of a very short term credit trade where they're just looking straight up are they getting more money in than than they're paying out and so and if they are which they have been for the last 6 years then they need to make adjustments and so adjustments mean either adding to your revenue or cutting to your payouts and so the cutting to the payouts I mean both are happening but the cutting to the payouts is a is means reducing their their reinsurers and then through them the primary insurers cutting exposure to catastrophic risk raising deductibles um, raising premiums you know moving away from providing coverage overall there's this eco there's economic effects at the local level as um, as individuals or businesses you know uh, as insurance becomes more expensive and that erodes property values it makes people less likely to live or move live live in or move to a place. Um, it also can directly affect um, um, governments, right? Governments have commercial insurance policies, and so if governments, you know, they insure, you know, if you're a if you're a water if if you're a water treatment plant, your water treatment plant has a property casualty insurance policy, and that and because most water and sewer operations in America, just to use that example, are gravity fed, right? So, right, gravity is the main force that that pulls you know the untreated sewage toward the treatment plant and so the treatment plant is always very low geographically and usually near the water and that's a dangerous place right with rising sea level and with, with rising uh sea levels with you know uh, saltwater inundation with storms and similar so you know there are a lot of water treatment plants or sewage treatment plants that may be uninsurable may may either see their cost rise or so there's a also a direct financial uh, financial effect and then it's going to fall to states doing just like what California is doing to rethink their insurance structure 
to push more risk from the insurers, right? If people are losing coverage, then the insurers have to move some of the risk to the insureds. And that's what's happened in Florida, right? Florida would have been uninsurable if if the industry hadn't changed, if Florida hadn't been constantly tweaking its insurance system for the last 10 years, um, then you might not have insurance policies at all in Florida these days. So California is maybe heading in the same way and has to replicate. You may think what Florida has done is a success or not, but California is going to have to replicate some of that. It's sort of, and that, you know, for those of your listeners who don't maybe know as much about muni credits versus others, it shows this sort of very organic nature, right? In particular, the bigger the government, the more flexibility they have to, de to determine their own future. Mm -hmm. And so a state isn't a passive entity where it just waits for its insurance coverage to leak away. It can change things and make it better. It doesn't mean it's a permanent fix because climate change is climate change, but it can help to manage the costs in the near term to keep, you know, and that helps. This is one of the reasons why the muni market has had a hard time, you know, incorporating climate change risks into its um, prices and yields because we anticipate that in the in the medium term meaning like five to ten years states and others will be able to make changes to keep payments flowing longer term right it gets more speculative i see that's very interesting is there anything else that you would like to share with us about this topic that you know we've haven't touched on um Sure. I mean, the, you know, the other things too is that we can talk, you know, you can think about climate change as just a physical risk, but it's but it's also much more than that, right? There are um right there are there are pressures from, you know, migration, right? Like like the like the people uh, and it's not just interstate where people moving from state to state because, you know, it's too hot in Arizona so you don't want to live there anymore or I don't know where, however else people move among states, but it's also right the 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 people trying to come into the country at the southern border a lot of them are coming in part because of climate change and so there's so these so the 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 migratory pressures that climate change catalyzes um create political um, um volatility like we've seen political frictions and muni bonds default it, the the big muni bonds right the small muni bonds default because they suck or because it's a it's it's a bad idea or because the economy turns south or whatever but big muni bonds default for political reasons. So political friction is the enemy of, you know, municipal market uh, solvency and, and sustainability. So as migration continues and intensifies and gets less predictable, you have um, overall the, you know, the, the politics in the country become more fractious and less predictable. And so payments become potentially compromised. So there's, there's that, and there's, you know, when there's other, you know, there's, it's not just the physical, there's political risks and, you know, the market is not quite there yet, but, um, you know, you know, we'll get there. And, and the, one more thing, let me say that there's an opportunity now, right? Because climate change, is going to require just a massive investment in public infrastructure in America, right? Um, the muni bond market, which produces now, you know, say 300 to $400 billion a year of new projects, right? Not refinancing, just new projects. Mm -hmm. That that could rise by 50%, right? We could be at a five to $600 billion of new money issuance every year just to manage climate change. Um, and so 
that means that the current muni bond environment where we're highly accepting of nearly everybody every structure every credit gets a great market access that may not be true right if scarcity is no a scarcity of tax exempt product is no longer a major constructive factor then spreads will have to widen and capital market access may become more difficult so for the borrowers who are not ahead of this who borrowers who are not acting proactively and borrowing now or in the near term to help finance their climate mitigation really are at risk of being stuck because they act too slow and by the time they decide to sort of think about climate change and address it then it's going to be too late and they'll have to pay a much higher spread so you as an investor also need to think this way and think about the coming change in the in the in the in the market tenor I'm I'm incredibly bullish about the market itself in the long term because of that, you know, enhanced flow of bonds, right? We're going to need all the investors, everybody on this call, everybody that we've that we've ever had. We're going to need the people, need the computers, need the algorithms, all of it just to process the flow. Um, but you are at more of a if, if the scarcity factor that is the glue that holds us together um, is no longer so strong. You could definitely see divergent uh, uh, credit and performance outcomes of bonds. And so you need to be careful about this. Interesting. I feel like that really checks out with what I've been seeing in the market in the past two years or so with like a lot more ESG bonds being issued. I think New York City just uh, issued its first social bonds like earlier this year, or late last year. Um, so I feel like that's that kind of checks out with everything that you just you just laid out for us. Yeah, no, well, that well, people are you know people are people want to be able to um, you know incorporate this into their investment uh, strategies. It's just you know, and there's a lot of reasons. The other thing too, remember that we talked earlier about the rating agencies not being able to sort of cleanly incorporate climate into their ratings which means that the indices the 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 total return and you know performance indices that mm-hmm. most muni investors now use to invest whether it's an ETF or a passive mutual fund or if you're booking return against an index those indices don't capture climate change either so investors have been it's not just that the prices don't show it but also that the indices don't reflect it so you're almost at a disadvantage from a performance perspective per, perspective if you do incorporate climate change so it's right this is these are things that need to change um and this is why we all all of us in this space you know think or expect that something will change in the you know again medium term like five year at some point we're going to rotate and think about climate change much more much more um um uh, with much more acuity than we than we do right now where it's you know, now we can talk generally and and sort of, you know, but without it have actually affecting prices. But that's that's not sustainable either. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's that's the perfect wrapped up for our conversation today. Um, thank you again, Matt, for sharing all your insights with us about climate risks and uh, municipal bonds. Right. Well, it was a pleasure um, um, talking to you and your fans. <laughs> well, thank you. For in-court coverage, we took a look at Sixterra Technologies, FTX Group, BlockFi, Instant Brands, Malincrot, McDermott, Dish Network, and T-Mobile. Last week, Judge John K. Sherwood approved Sixterra Technologies' disclosure statement and scheduled a confirmation hearing for November 6th.
Sixtera unveiled a settlement with the UCC last weekend. The plan documents were amended to provide for the creation of a GUC trust to be funded with $8.65 million on the effective date. During the disclosure statement hearing, Debtors Council noted that the plan contemplates a lender recapitalization transaction, but Sixtera could still toggle to a sale and the debtors are engaging with multiple prospective bidders. BlockFi debtors announced an agreement with the FTX Group debtors to address the claims between their respective bankruptcy estates. Under the deal, FTX debtor West Realm Shard's lending facility claim against BlockFi would be allowed in the amount of $275 million and will be subordinated to the recovery of account holders' claims and intercompany claims as provided for under BlockFi's plan. The parties will litigate FTX's avoidance action claims and BlockFi's claims before the Delaware Bankruptcy Court overseeing the FTX Chapter 11 cases. Malincroft disclosed that it expects to issue take-back debt at emergence after members of the ad hoc first link term loan group and ad hoc crossover group did not consent to the debtor's pursuit of syndicated exit financing. Separately, second lien creditor United Equities and shareholder Alta Fundamental Advisors objected to Malincroft's plan ahead of a confirmation hearing set for October 4th. United Equities argues that the debtors bought votes by paying $80 million in pre-petition RSA fees and $30 million in dip backstop premiums. Alta calls the payments and a 10% management incentive plan windfalls for insiders. Refineria de Cartina SAS, or Refi Car, asked the New York Federal Court to issue a pre-judgment writ of attachment preventing McDermott International Holdings, BV, CBI, and BB, and CBI and UK Limited from removing assets from the U.S. while proceeding to confirm or vacate Refi Car's $937.5 million arbitration award against the CBNI entities is pending. According to Refi Car, the McDermott affiliates are attempting to use their recently filed Dutch scheme and English Part 26A restructuring plan to escape the award before it is confirmed. In the English plan, McDermott is seeking a three-year maturity extension on secured debt and a release of upwards of $1.65 billion in unsecured arbitration and related claims. The company also said it will seek Chapter 15 recognition in the U.S. Dish Network and T-Mobile sparred in briefs regarding Dish ne- Dish's motion to extend its option to purchase T-Mobile's 800 MHz Spectrum licenses under a 2020 final divestment judgment related to T-Mobile's acquisition of Sprint. Dish argues that the district court should give weight to a recent brief in the U.S. Department of Justice which pressed for an extension of the divestiture deadline to April 1, 2024. However, T-Mobile argues that the court should deny Dish's extension request and reject the DOJ's compromise proposal. Both sides urge the U.S. Federal Communications Commission to expeditiously approve their spectrum transfer applications. Instant Brands designated an affiliate of Centerline Partners as the successful bidder for the debtor's housewares business for $228.2 million and appliances business for $122.6 million. The sale hearing is scheduled for Tuesday, October 3rd. Canopy growth in Hawaiian electric industries were front and center last week in legislative and regulatory news. The Senate Banking Committee voted to favorably report to the full Senate legislation that would ensure that state law legal cannabis companies have access to banking insurance and other financial services. Additionally, the Secure and Fair Enforcement Regulation, or SAFER Banking Act, creates a safe harbor from federal law for transactions with state legal cannabis businesses. The committee vote to move forward to legislation was 14 to 9. If the legislation is ultimately passed and signed by President Joe Biden, it can make it easier for cannabis businesses, including cannabis growth, to conduct operations in the U.S. The House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations held a hearing examining how Hawaiian Electric's infrastructure contributed to wildfires that devastated parts of Maui in August. Hawaiian Electric CEO Shalit Kimura defended the company's wildfire mitigation efforts and reiterated the cause of the fire that damaged Lahaina has not been determined. Kimura also said that the utility is cooperating fully with investigations by Hawaiian authorities, which he said may take 12 to 18 months to conclude. 
Comscope holding company and diversified healthcare trust lead the path this week in new advisor mandates. An ad hoc group of Comscope term lenders and secured note holders is working with Gibson Dunn as legal advisor and PJT Partners as financial advisor to evaluate options for the company's debt maturities. In addition, some unsecured bondholders and crossholders are in discussions with Hulay and Loki. The covenant package may give the company the option to execute certain liability management transactions that may be disadvantageous to secured creditors whose debt matures after the unsecured notes. Diversified Healthcare Trust announced that it engaged B Rally Securities as financial advisor to help the company analyze various options to address its short-term capital needs, including upcoming debt maturities. The company is considering raising permissible new capital from investors and investing assets. Diversified said it cannot raise additional debt or refinance outstanding debt because it has been unable to comply with debt incurrence covenants in its bond indentures over the past two years. Diversified also plans to engage in discussions with its lenders regarding its bank debt maturing in January 2024, according to release issued after the market closed last week. Top red stories this week included U.S. Trustee urges Supreme Court to reverse Second Circuit Purdue non-debtor release decision, so sprawling tort liability can be resolved without a legal and nuclear weapon. McDermott P26A plan challenged by secured unsecured creditors, three-day sanction trial to begin December 4th, potential valuation dispute. Medical Properties Trust, Randpack Updates, World Pay Forward Air, NCR, Viasat, Adams Homes, Sonova, Cineos Health Primary Review, analysis of 13 private loans now available. Weeks Chapter 11 filings buoyed by healthcare companies. Team Health explores comprehensive refinancing. Reorg analyzes fallout from Charter Disney Distribution Agreement. Now here's Kate Thomas in New York with The Week Ahead. Welcome to The Week Ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. For now, here are some highlights. Starting off on Monday, the Celsius network debtors have their planned confirmation hearing. The plan contemplates a new co-reorganization sponsored by Fahrenheit or an alternative wind-down transaction with Blockchain Recovery Investment Consortium as a backup. At a recent hearing, the debtors said that most plan objections, including all objections from governmental agencies, have been resolved. However, the plan was rejected by unsecured creditors in Classes 8 and 9. The debtors counter that in either transaction, the plan will maximize recoveries, quote, on the quickest timeline and with the greatest number of flexibility, unquote. Also Monday, the new Smile Direct Club debtors have their first day hearing. The debtors filed an $80 million dip facility provided by the company's founders. The dip facility includes $75 million in new money and $20 million would be made available on an interim basis. According to the first day declaration, the debtors have 60 days to pursue a going concern sale before they must switch to an orderly liquidation through a Chapter 11 plan which would need to be confirmed by December 23rd. Jumping to Wednesday, the Mallinckrodt debtors also have a plan confirmation hearing. The plan has drawn objections to, to its contemplated 80 million in pre-petition RSA fees, 30 million in dip backstop premiums, and management incentive program. The objections claim that these terms constitute vote buying, evidence of bad faith, and insider payments that justify denying confirmation. The debtors filed an amended plan on Friday reflecting new take-back debt that was previewed in the second plan supplement. Also on Wednesday, a hearing in Puerto Rico on the effect of the Highways and Transportation Authority plan of adjustment is scheduled to get underway. The HDA Insured Bondholder Group has asked for a determination that the plan of adjustment did not validly accelerate HDA bonds that are insured by assured guarantee and held in custodial trusts established for the group's benefit under the plan. Also this week, 
the core scientific and Celsius debtors are seeking approval of their settlement in their respective cases. The settlement would resolve all of the outstanding litigation between the two, other than the Celsius convertible notes claims against core scientific. Under the settlement, core scientific would sell certain assets to Celsius, including the Cedarville, Texas Bitcoin Mining Center, and would grant Celsius a license to use certain intellectual property. In exchange, Celsius would pay Core Scientific $14 million in cash and would grant Core releases of more than $312 million in claims asserted by Celsius. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website. Have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on reorg.com webinars and podcast pages, well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.